This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to the Indie Football Podcast. I'm your host, Vidushan Nahantaraja, and I'm joined today by our Chief Football Writer for the Independent, Miguel Delaney, and our Assistant Sports Editor, Jack Rathborn. Hello to you both. We were going to start with international football for the um, after the last couple of weeks, but breaking news, Pep Guardiola has signed a new deal at Manchester City, keeping him on board at the Etihad for another couple of years. Huge news, obviously, not least given Guardiola's history and how long he tends to spend at clubs, but also just ending any speculation of a return to Barcelona or a journey elsewhere. Migs, I'm going to throw to you straight away. Why is he staying and did you see this coming? Uh, no, well, I think the... Um... Uh, the vibes tried, had started to change in the last two weeks. It was up until about three weeks ago. A lot of people expected him to to leave. Uh, and the story is that basically having weighed up a lot of options and a lot of uh, his circumstances, he felt that staying was best for his career right now. Um, and I suppose that will necessitate the, uh, the building of a new team, which is going to be a pretty interesting challenge. The um the recent uh, you know Kevin you mentioned a new team there Kevin De Bruyne signing a, a new deal fairly recently um was that a sign that he was you know that that things were moving on in that way that he wanted to maintain some core players even with the rebuild yeah I mean it's a bit I suppose that's kind of like a it's a classic Ferguson move almost isn't it he, I mean he always he Ferguson went through drastic changes but he always had a core of kind of stalwarts who who basically kept the standards I suppose. Uh, and and De Bruyne is indispensable to the club, especially given he's not exactly a player you, you'd ever expect of kind of slackening off. You can see it when he's on the pitch, the way he talks to teammates. Uh, he's he'd be one of the the sharper players in that regard, and very much a totem of this uh, whole city era. Jack, um, if I could bring you into this part of the conversation, um, we were just talking actually before off mic about you know trying to list the number of managers who peaked twice, which is essentially what he's going to do after you know, what he's won so far and the fact that Liverpool have come and, I suppose, taken over City as the dominant force in English football. Um, you know, just from the names you're, I say rattling through and I say names, we could only think of Sir Alex Ferguson as someone who could peak more than once. Wenger um, as well, I'd say. Oh, well, okay. I, well, yeah. I, I have actually written about this a few weeks ago. Uh, <laughs> so I, I have Wenger, <laughs> Fergie, Fergie three or four times, Bob Paisley, Shankly, you could say, Busby three times, um, uh, and Catterick at Everton in the 60s and 70s. Well, there you go, Jack. Uh, we've, we've got our answers. But I suppose the fact that Miguel can reel them off like that shows how memorable they are and how rare it is. Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. I think it's it's interesting that Guardiola is about to attempt to do it this season or in the coming seasons. And 
you look over at Atletico Madrid with Diego Simeone, Cholismo 2.0, that's that's going to be his version of uh, reconstructing the the sort of uh, the DNA of the team as such. I don't think Guardiola will do that quite as much. I think there will still be the um, the underlying themes of, of um, Guardiola's um, philosophy still there. But yeah, it's it, it's very much a, a case of trying to freshen things up, but making sure that there's a there's enough of the building blocks in place which has been um, unprecedented success at City over the last last few years. How much of this is, uh, you know, Miguel mentioned it at the first at the top with his answer, but you know, Barcelona with their various issues, there was kind of it might have been Twitter talk alone, but there was the idea that like actually Ronald Koeman was the sacrificial lamb to kind of be in for this almost you know this period in limbo, and he might get the boot at the end of the season, and that'll lead the way for Guardiola to come back in. And I suppose be be the savior of um, of Barcelona once more. But do you do you think this is quite a calculated move in terms of do you think he's made the decision having seen what's out there and not really seeing anything that particularly interested him? Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it, and also what City are willing to offer. Uh, I have to say, I've never been as uh, I've never been as persuaded that Guardiola is going to go back to Barcelona in the way Manny automatically seemed to think, like, especially given what he did there the first time. Like, I, 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 I just don't see it as one of the things that attracts him. I, I think he would like to work in Italy at one point. Um, and obviously the Juventus interest has always been there. But uh, I mean, Juventus are an interesting one in that regard, given they've just installed Pirlo. And I mean, okay, while the club's intention would obviously be to have him around for a few years, and for Pirlo to be a Pep Guardiola. I mean, there's every chance that could go very wrong. So um, it's, it's interesting if that was part of Pep's thinking. Uh, but I, again, I suppose it just comes back to the, to the state of the market. But what's interesting in all this as well is this doesn't seem like a situation where, I mean, if you look at the, at the managerial sackings this season, clubs are slow to do it. Uh, and like the, the, manager, the managerial market in itself is quite slow. And I suppose because clubs are conscious of the circumstances. Jack, the... Um... The other, I suppose, fascinating element to all this is that he's facing Jose Mourinho on the weekend as um, Manchester City take on Spurs at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Uh, Miguel, you're going to that, but first, I just want to bring Jack in here and say, and what, and ask really that, you know, Mourinho feels like he's also trying to, you know, bring himself, well, certainly turn himself around, as uh, many people have said, that he's passed it and Spurs are. They're where they are now. I'm just going to get the table up so I'm not totally winging this. But, you know, in place a second after eight games or 17 points, point behind Leicester City, he was still top. Um, I suppose it's a bit much to call it a throwback because it's only really a few years ago when you could say that those two were unequivocally at their peak. But already this... Um, well, I mean, do you get the impression that um, Mourinho is kind of undergoing the same thing that Guardiola's trying to undergo? To an extent, but I think Mourinho sort of uh, had a, I, w- I, w- I wouldn't say a horrendous experience at United because I think there were underlying factors as to why that didn't work out quite how he, he would have hoped. But I think he, he certainly realised, as, as, as evidenced by the, the situation now at Spurs, that he had to tweak his approach more drastically than, say, Guardiola has to after this slump for City. I think certainly Mourinho has had to become a more updated version of of his prime 
while while Guardiola can lean on on what he knows and what he does best because the game itself has has lent lent itself to the patterns of play and the uh, the intricacies of attack minded football more so for Guardiola than than uh, than Mourinho and now you're seeing that Mourinho is almost it's been a humbling experience as such that he's he's almost adjusted his approach to the squad that he was inheriting at at Spurs so I think in that sense it's it's been the the perfect spot for him because there were several parts to the to the team and the budget wasn't quite ex- as extensive as previous jobs that he's his experience that there there really wasn't a drastically different approach that he could have brought to this Spurs job. He had to make the best of um, Kane, of Son, and then he's been quite flexible in the market and they've, they've reacted to situations and opportunities. So in that sense, I think that it's been quite a clever um, evolution of Mourinho, whilst I think Guardiola, despite the, the sort of shocking um, drop-off over the last year or so from City, I think you can... You can put that down to more me- mental reasons among the uh, the makeup of a squad rather than the actual quality at hand. Migs, you're going to be at this match on Saturday. Uh, you said you're writing a preview actually for um, for Friday, which people can read on the Independent.co.uk. Um, you know your piece is going to involve both Mourinho and Guardiola. What what are the threads you're you're pulling out here? Well, I, I think what's been interesting, I suppose, is Essentially, since Guardiola came on the scene, it marked what was a pretty extended uh, and not completely linear decline for Mourinho because it just it so changed football. And Mourinho had himself changed football five years before that. And as is kind of the, the case of revolutionaries in, the, in this way, they don't often adapt and evolve and almost get kind of further invested in their own ideas to, to try and prove that, that, that it can still work. And now it feels like, not that we've come full circle, because I think the game has obviously evolved a different direction, but we are in a state where Guardiola has to adapt a little bit and where circumstances might suit Mourinho. And, and also where they're just, they've been cast against each other so long that now they're in kind of, it, it, the, the situation has almost flipped in that um, Mourinho is suddenly, maybe for the first time since 2014 at Chelsea, quite happy in a job content he's got what he wanted and things are going fairly well now of course the problems come with Mourinho when he starts to encounter roadblocks and then we um and then we see a totally different side to his character whereas Guardiola I mean one of the reasons why this extension is so interesting is not just that he has to build a new team but also that he has to manage um his own situation I suppose because I mean he just doesn't look at Guardiola we all know he, he's a very intense man and a very intense manager. And what makes him so brilliant is um, is also what makes the job difficult. Uh, for, that in, the, in that players just get fatigued by that level of intensity and need a break. And it, it's often why kind of more relaxed managers, like say a Carlo Ancelotti, work well after a kind of an ideologue in that way. Uh, and that's why I think it's, it, it comes, it comes, it's a game that comes at a very interesting time in both tenures. We'll preview the rest of the Premier League action after the break. But for now, we're going to stick, or rather go back to the international football that we witnessed, specifically the playoffs, where there was glory for Scotland, but none for the Northern Ireland. Scotland now back in their first tournament for 20 years after their victory over Serbia. 
I suppose the one thing that immediately stuck out to me was that not only are they going to be in a group with England, but they're going to be playing England at Wembley. How hopeful, Miguel, are we for crowds to have returned by this point? Um, I at the, at the moment, on, on the current information we have, I'm having spoken to people at the FA, I would be confident of 50 to 70% crowds. Now, of course, we don't know how the situation is going to evolve in the meantime. Um, I do think there's an outside chance we could have a normal tournament. Uh, maybe not even an outside chance. I think, I mean, from what you hear, we could have relative normality back to society by April. If that's the case, then it um, it could be very it could be very possible we have a normal Euros. Uh, I suppose the difficulty in all this is that for the purpose of logistics and even stuff like kind of teams choosing base and to make plans, UEFA have to make a decision on this in the next two months. Um, which could dictate a lot. And if you say, if you even look at this format, which is, uh, you know, 12, 12 countries, I mean, most of these countries or cities have only signed up because of all the benefits of, of having kind of 100% crowds and, and all, all the kind of positives of a tournament uh, attract. I mean, and that's lessened, obviously, economically as much as anything, if you don't have the full benefit. So that's what feed into their thinking. Uh, and, that, and that could mean the Euros are moved. That isn't, that, that isn't off the table yet. It could yet be in one country. And that's not necessarily Wembley. Uh, but for the moment, I'm cautiously optimistic we could have a normal expected Euros. So do you reckon it would be, or rather, I suppose this is a, a more difficult question to answer, but is there a specific timeline where they need to make that decision? Like, um, you know, say April of next year? Is that? Do you know if there's any kind of uh, deadline for that particular um, decision to be made? It has to be the next two months. So we'll say between now and the end of January. Now between the end of January. Fine. Fair dues. Fair dues. Well, we can only hope. Um, is there, well, that particular player for Scotland and indeed Northern Ireland came on a pretty thrilling night of international football, actually. International football doesn't, um, perhaps unfairly, is quite maligned, especially in the current climate where it feels like the players need a break. But um, Jack, that night in particular, um, it, international football it showed that when something's on it when something you know so precious is on it that nothing really beats it to be fair yeah i think that the way the tournament has been structured to to have these peaks um sort of building to a crescendo the the way that the the um the rounds worked and i think it it worked so nicely with so much at stake to offer like you said rewards for for teams that like like Scotland, it became a realistic uh, outcome for them, and they gradually started to believe. And it was then set up that all or nothing moment. And yeah, I thought it was a thrilling watch, and I, I'll actually look forward to to that as more of a, a concrete part of the, the the calendar, more so than I I would have otherwise. Uh, that said, obviously we don't know how long this this might be here to stay, but yeah, I I, I really enjoyed it. Miggs has written a great piece on the qualifying night, um, well, or rather as this being the best qualifying night since 1993, where he started to gather the different stories and different matches that were happening on uh, that night on the 17th, was it? 17th of November, 1993, Miggs? Yeah, yeah. So that's definitely worth checking out on the Indie website. Miggs, you've also been involved in England's matches over the last couple of weeks obviously started with that win over the Republic of Ireland then defeat to Belgium and then capping it off with a pretty comprehensive win 
against Iceland on Wednesday. Um, what have you made of, of what you've seen of uh, of England heading into, I suppose not quite heading into the Euros, but certainly now that they're done with their competitive fixtures? <laughs> Mostly the people don't want to talk about international football. <laughs> it seems to be the big takeaway. I, there seems to be... It, 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 I mean, and I, I, I just say I do wonder how much Southgate can possibly have learned from the glut of games the in the abnormal circumstances and in, in a situation where there was huge pressure from club football as well. Um, and I suppose the big question is whether England's are in a, you know, have they gone forwards, backwards, stayed still, and whether it will suit them to have played the Euros in in June or whether it's better to play it next June. And <laughs> from that, I think it's hard to say. He, he definitely does have more variety, so okay, more potential options. Uh, and Grealish has, of course, announced himself as the uh, as really the real kind of not so much the wild card, but the real creative presence in the team. Um, I mean, it, it is interesting. In, in the Iceland game, England almost doubled their goals from open play for the year. They went from four to seven. Um, one of those, one of those was basically mount from a defensive error, not really open play. Another a thunderbolt from Foden, again, not really constructed play. But that is interesting because in comparison to this time last year when England were the most free-scoring side in Europe. But Southgate did make a point to say that he thought that was a little bit illusory last year because, I mean, the level of teams they played towards the end of the qualifiers were fairly poor and, he, as he said, not top-level defences. Um, so that's quite interesting. I, I, I think he actually genuinely does feel he's in better shape than he was a year ago or even a few months ago. Jack, Miggs has mentioned Grealish there. He seemed to be the standout, standout over the last... Three matches. Um, Jamie Carragher reckons he can't play in Southgate three four three. Where do you stand on that? Do you agree with Carragher? I, I disagree that you can't play in a three four three. I just think that it would come to the detriment of some of the other like, really good, good talented players that Southgate has at, has at his disposal. You look at the likes of Sterling and Rashford not involved, uh, Sancho not quite hitting the heights that he he once was, but obviously very much capable. You, you see how Foden is uh, another brilliant individual that you could argue is worth building around, like Grealish has been. And then you, you have Southgate's other players, which are fundamental to the way he works, such as Mason Mount. So I think, I mean, also you look at the way Harry Kane's evolving into a number 10. So it's, it's becoming very difficult for Southgate to operate on a who's in, who's in the best form that they enter the team. I think you... You need to sort of, sort of lean towards more of a, a club system and that that loyalty that he's displayed towards the the players that helped him go so far in the World Cup. I think with Grealish, you, I mean, he's he's such a, a brilliant individual that you you don't want to restrict him too much. But then it's a double edged sword that the only reason he wasn't called up sooner was that Southgate was clearly looking to see him prove himself off the ball. And uh, in a team environment, um, the discipline in his position. And I think he's shown that he has the enough individual quality that he, he's worth um, sort of overriding that responsibility to an extent. But then you're not going to be able to fit in the likes of, of Rashford from the left. And you might have to sacrifice Jaden Sancho. And I'm not sure, despite how amazing Grealish has been over the last six months to a year, I don't know if he's worth risking players of, of, of that talent who who might be, 
I think the word might be tactically more more flexible. That said, he's I think you can you can play him off the left in a in a free roll in that three four three, and other players can be plugged in. Saka from the left, I think would would dovetail nicely. And uh, I think at this stage, he's he's forcing Southgate's hand. Migs, just off the back of of Jack's answer there, with the with the number of players England have, particularly in um, in forward positions, you know, if this was a if this was club football, we'd be talking about how you know he's got good problems to have. But I suppose they're only good problems if the manager can utilise all those players in in functional ways. Do you think Southgate has that in him to to do so, or do you think he'll be a bit more conservative? at the Euros or just conservative full stop at the Euros because he doesn't quite have what it takes to, I suppose, just mould all those, um, all that attacking talent together in a, in a meaningful way. Well, I think there's an interesting dilemma here. First of all, Seiket has a lot of attacking talent, but he doesn't really have the midfield talent that really gets that attacking talent moving in a kind of a dominant modern system. And that is a, li- that is a fairly big dilemma because it means... England are kind of it means almost England need to develop two systems. I think they need one when they're when they're clearly the superior side, which which will be them on the ball and then and and controlling midfield, and then they need one, and and this is the real key to Southgate's tenure, and it's why some of the last few months have actually been interesting. He needs one for when they play sides of England's level who basically all have the the type of midfielder, be that Thiago, be that Verratti, be that Cruz, that England don't. Uh, and that's a huge issue. And so I think he has to learn to develop a team that maximises that talent, but without necessarily having the ball. So essentially, counterattacking game. And England might have to might have to be the kind of almost most two faced side in international football in that regard. Uh, but on, on another side, I think when you see talent like that, it's difficult. I think it can be a bit of a misconception here because we've all been when it comes to international football anyway, we've all been a bit fooled by the club game. You know, what, what, what we see at club level and what we now imagine as the best possible football is impossible at international level. Uh, because they just don't have the time. Uh, you could argue they don't have the ideas since most of the best coaches play work in the club game anyway. Uh, and you, you just can't integrate that level of cohesion. You can't develop it. It's almost impossible to do at international level. Well, one manager who is certainly under a little bit of pressure, or probably even more than that, actually, is Jogi Love at Germany after they got a pasting at the hands of Spain. 6-0. I think, what was it, Miguel? You you referenced it in the WhatsApp group. It's his heaviest. It's Germany's heaviest defeat since... Since 1931. Yeah. Right, well, there you go. Um, is he in trouble? Oliver Bierhoff, the um, Germany technical director, says, or rather the team director, Says he trusts Yogi Love and that he's more than more than welcome to add to his fourteen years already in the job. Um, how is he set though? In uh, you know after that performance, um, I think it's really interesting. Well, I, I really don't think Germany will make a move now, especially well. It's not quite on the eve of a tournament, but it's as we're as we're in the kind of final countdown to the Euros. Uh, it would be very un-German like, uh, and also they kind of they made their move in that regard when they when they basically backed Lowe's plan to discard all the 2014 legends like Neuer, or not Neuer, like uh, like Boateng, like uh, Thomas Muller, uh, and went with Love in that regard. Uh, and I suppose there is a certain sense that games like this, because we've seen so many of them where there's these suddenly massively big defeats, Bayern against Barca being won, there is a sense they're a little bit freakish because of the situation. I think that is possible. But at the same time, some of this has been coming for some time. And 
I mean, I have to say, I've, ne- I've never been that much of a fan of Love. Um, I think I think he's just a kind of a generally par international manager. You know, people will point to some cosmetic changes he made in tournaments that swung things, but there are just as many that go the other way, like playing Lamb in midfield in 2014 that kind of scuttled their defence for a while. Uh, and I think overall, he's actually underperformed with that level of talent. Uh, and now people might point to the World Cup and yes, the World Cup is the most prestigious prize in football, all the rest of it. But Germany can only play in two major trophies. They've had 14 years where they've been the wealthiest country with the most expensive and expansive uh, youth overhaul that we've ever seen. It's been a conveyor belt. They've industrialized youth production in that way. And I think one one major trophy out of 14 years is actually not not that good a return, even allowing for the quirks of... of um, of cup football. Moving to um to Spain, who uh, seem to uh, I noticed that there were actually a few people who worried the result might be the other way before that match that Spain would be the, on the wrong end of that kind of scoreline. Um, Jack, are Spain back, or you know, as Miguel says, is this a bit of a freakish result that neither side should really take too much from? I think there's there's an element that of freakishness to the result, but I think you just. The, the thing that would embolden me as a Spain fan would be how Luis Enrique has, has completely transformed the squad dynamic. And you look at the, as you said, there was some doubt over the scoreline, which way it would go based on the teams laid out on paper. The, the way he's he's managed the goalkeeping situation, Unai Simon coming in and discarding De Gea and, and Kepa, I think that's been really impressive how he's handled that. His utilisation of Rodri at the... Uh, the fulcrum of the midfield, I think that's been so impressive and, and actually is a, almost a hint to what could come at City, the way that Rodri plays in that role for, for Spain. I think it's, it's fantastic to see. And then also another City player in Ferran Torres. And you just look at the, the potential there. He's got another match winner and actually a player that we're well accustomed to, and this is not just new, a new conveyor belt of talent for Luis Enrique. The fact that he's he's getting a tune now out of Marata back at Juventus and really blossoming again, that, that's a player that has always been held back mentally. And then if you unlock his confidence, I think you can see a, a striker that has the package to be a real driving force for a side of Spain's quality, a side of Juventus's quality. So, in that sense, I think that you've just got a bit of a machine-like um, team in, in Spain, and that's all down to Enrique, in my opinion. Well, just to cap off this section, and indeed this half, um, we do have four Nations League finalists in Belgium, France, Italy and Spain. Um, after the break, we'll be talking about this weekend's Premier League action. Don't go away. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Welcome back to the Indie Football Podcast. And we've got a bumper Premier League schedule over the weekend. As discussed, you've got Spurs, Manchester City on Saturday. And then on Sunday, we're also treated to Liverpool versus Leicester City. First v third in the table. Leicester, of course, being that first. We'll probably start, though, on, as ever it seems to be on this pod, on Manchester United, who are facing West Brom at the 8pm kickoff on Saturday. Um, Miguel, if you want to start us off here, um, how much did Solskjaer need that win against Everton, especially going into this particular break? Oh, usually. I mean, I think had he lost that game, I don't think United would have acted and sacked him, but uh, I do think there could have it could have been one of, the, one of those games where he was on that a negative spiral, so to speak, where events take on a life of their own. Now, but as we've seen in Solskjaer's two years so far, it's basically just been cycle after cycle of this, and now we're on the kind of <laughs> the upward side of the cycle. And uh, you can imagine, you can, it's very easy to see um, that they get just a really comfortable win against West Brom now, and you know all the talk, oh, this is the real Manchester United, and we go round and round again. <laughs> The um, Jack uh, kind of typically, as always happens on international breaks, players go away and they say things that then get translated and then retranslated and then mistranslated. Um, and Paul Pogba was the latest to um, quote unquote full foul of that and had to come out and, and clarify his comments that he made in an interview, saying that he was, you know, he accepts that his his own performances have not been good and he needs to turn them around rather than any slight against the club. Um, we're probably, I don't know, we're probably all sick about talking about him because I think we've seen what he's capable of and his various shortcomings. But do you think there is still a problem there to be solved beyond just, you know, keeping him on the bench? Yeah, I have some sympathy for Pogba in, in terms of, like you said, everything gets twisted. And just because he's praising the situation with France, who obviously have a lot to play for and a great opportunity with the the squad that they have at their disposal. Just because he's he's praising that that environment, everybody automatically assumes that it uh, it's more of an indictment on what's happening at United. And I, there has to be an element of truth in in that, obviously, because we we're not blind. We can see what's happening at United and the um, the roller coaster ride that is Solskjaer's couple of big wins, couple of terrible defeats, couple of big wins, etc. I think Pogba is one of those players where I think we we just need to accept that he, he is going to have his, his ups and downs. But I don't know if he, he's the sort of player that's going to react to coming out of the team and having to fight and scrap his way back in. I think he needs to, to be loved. He needs to have a very specific role in the team. And then when you, when you let him have an expansive role and to sort of, showcase the the colour that you can offer in, uh, to a team's attack-minded play. You, you've got a player that, that can be a match winner, but I don't know if, if Solskjaer is willing to, given the, um, the ramifications of a, a bad run. And I don't know if United is quite the right team to, to show off Pogba's full array of skills. Mix, just um, just on the Pogba thing, do you think we're in a situation now where, because he enjoys playing with France so much and, you know, he's going to be there for another few years, that actually, you know, it, it doesn't actually matter that much how much he's playing domestically. Do you get the impression that he's pretty satisfied with being a World Cup winner, you know, with a good chance of 
winning the Euros and I suppose just being the big man in one place and being bit part elsewhere. Uh, I don't know. I find him very hard to read in that sense, Pogba. Um, he's an enigma almost, but like in the sense of we don't know what his best position is. It's actually hard to say what we should almost what we should expect of him at this point. And there's even, I suppose, a bigger debate over whether would you say he's truly fulfilled his talent in his career? Because on the one side, you look at what's happening at Manchester United as he comes into his prime. On the other side, there were multiple titles with Juventus when he was very good in a specific role, it must be said, and a World Cup with France. Um, it's, it is difficult not to escape the perception of United right now that he is... I'm not sure coasting is the right word, but we, we, when, you, when you compare some of our listless performances with flashes of talent... Then with this, your perpetual petulance, where you like he can't seem to have an international break where he doesn't speak out. Uh, the, the one thing I would say for Pogba here, uh, he was one of those players who I think very early on wasn't sure about Solskjaer, uh, and maybe isn't completely convinced, and that's going to almost come across in some of his uh, in some of his comments. I mean, he made it, that, that was a, a surprisingly open comment. I thought the other day when he talked about kind of, you know, how, it's, how much how much better it is in France or with the French national team, which, I mean, ultimately is, whether it's direct or indirect, is a, is, is a reflection of the manager. Um, and I have to say, this, this, this is one thing where I'd have sympathy for Solskjaer. I think, would it be better to be shot at it? If they could get the money for him, which is now dubious, not going to say a lot about Pogba, would you just, you know, get, get, get shot at this and bring in a midfield that... Works better for you, Jack. If I um, if I can bring you in for this last particular bit, and it relates to Mason Greenwood, um, and it, you know, I suppose it's worth mentioning, not least because Phil Foden's brace yesterday kind of got the typical narrative going of the bloke who is, um, you know, putting the incidents of Iceland behind him and and this that and the other. But Mason Green, obviously not in the squad, um, wasn't in the under twenty ones either. Um, rather than this weekend being a turning point per se, do you feel like it's it's quite a big few months, even for a player so young, to just kind of, I don't know, get the focus back on his football, I suppose? Yeah, ho- hopefully he, he can do that. I think the, the the added time with Solskjaer to plan for such a big game, whether that is a role off the bench, uh, we don't know, or, or from the start, I think that can do him a world of good just to sort of have that, that extra one-to-one time with his his manager and to discuss how things are going both on and off the pitch. I think you you, you hit the nail on the head. He's a, he's a very young player who doesn't necessarily need to be hitting heights in, in time for the Euros. I mean, obviously, he, he would be an option for Southgate if he was back to his best. Um, that's how good he can be. But he, he definitely has time on his side. And I think it would be nice to, to see him sort of adapt uh, a bit more of a, a consistent role for United and um, like I said it doesn't need to be from the start always but I think given enough minutes and given the the intensity of the schedule if Greenwood is involved every week in some capacity I think that is going to do wonders for for his game and I think you'll, you'll see the the best of him just naturally through through uh, the environment that he's in if he's playing week to week because he's such a young player it was Inevitable that he would he would he would come off the ball at some point because the trajectory was almost unparalleled because of like how how ruthless he was being in front of him. So um, yeah, I'd like to see him just just start to, to sort of 
fit in with the furniture in the background a little bit, come on in games, start some games. United are obviously going to be involved in Europe too. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see Greenwood sort of um, be given um, a couple of roles in the team, show his versatility. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see Greenwood sort of show, show signs of getting back to his best and, and the glimpse of the, the exceptional future that he undoubtedly has. The weekend's fixtures are going to get kicked off by Newcastle, Chelsea at St. James's Park. Jack, I'll keep you on for this one. Um, looked like Chelsea had the best of, of the international break in terms of players clearly in form. There's obviously a couple of issues given that um, Christian Pulisic has been ruled out of this this particular fi- fixture and Kai Havertz has, have to, has had to self-isolate as well. But, I mean, I might as well just jump straight to the chase. Hakim Ziyech. By the way, I mean, I know people were excited about coming, him coming in, and there was maybe a sense that having been the first of Chelsea signings for this particular campaign at the start of the year, he then got superseded by Havertz and then Werner. But having come into the side, he, well, he's just, I don't feel like the Premier League has another player like him, actually, and especially that left foot. I mean, he feels like he's, he's opening all kinds of options for, for Chelsea and indeed Lampard as well. Yeah, he's he's one of the most exciting players in the league, undoubtedly. And I think he was, I mean, might not have been on everybody's radar, but he continued his Chelsea form into the international break with Morocco. Um, had a hand in in every goal for the central Af- against the Central African Republic. I think you, you saw him score. You saw the assist for Hakimi, which is um, just something that is, is a delight to watch. The way he he has the the perfect weight on all his passes. And then the influence from the right flank. I think the best thing you can say about Ziyech is that he's so efficient in the way that he operates. Yeah, he can play the passes that Meza Urzo at his best could could play. But actually, he if if the pass for a, or the, the the opportunity for a direct cross is on, he'll take that. He showed that for Morocco midweek, and he he's also shown it for Chelsea um, just before the break against Sheffield United. That sort of that whipped diagonal ball from the right flank for an on-rushing, either attacking uh, left left-sided attacking player in, in Werner or even Ben Chilwell. I think you're going to see a lot of goals created by that. And this is a really interesting weekend, I think, for for Chelsea because we've talked about City and Liverpool having difficult games. Spurs obviously involved in the title race too, and uh, Chelsea have that this weird situation where you might see like the weekend before the international break, a lot of teams interchanging at the top of the league. And because Chelsea are first up, they have the opportunity to take Leicester out of the top and then temporarily move into that top spot. But Newcastle, I think, were probably one of the the top two or three teams who had the best of Chelsea last season. And um, Steve Bruce, in the the first game at Stamford Bridge, completely nullified Chelsea for the most part. It took um, a bit of a freakish sort of... um, Freakish goal from Marcos Alonso at the back post, poor marking, and just they switched off, and Chelsea got out of jail. And then Chelsea dominated at St James's Park, but really couldn't crack the nut. And then uh, Isaac Hayden, I mean, it was it was a bit of a daylight robbery, but that's just <laughs> how Steve Bruce's side set up a lot of the time last season, and you couldn't you couldn't fault them for it. And they and Chelsea got exactly what they deserved because last season they couldn't really manage situations in games where. It wasn't going for them. And I think Lampard's slightly evolved in that sense now. And Chelsea look like they they are capable of both 
picking the lock, but also they've now got weapons in, in Ziek, like I said, with that direct crosses. And also the fullbacks um, through James, like putting in, in crosses from deeper areas, but he can also operate one-twos in and around the penalty area. And now Chilwell, I mean, he might not be fit, but he's he's also added that that element of Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold. Chelsea are trying to replicate that in, 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 in some way. Yeah, that Newcastle record, by the way, at St. James's Park against Chelsea, they've only lost one of their last seven league matches, winning five and drawing one. Just on Newcastle, sorry, just on Newcastle. I should credit Dom Flyfield with this. We're doing some remarkable stat with Newcastle. They're actually the most consistent team in the league and that the record is basically win, lose, win, lose, win, lose. <laughs> I mean, the one thing about Newcastle, you know what you're going to get. Yeah, I mean they've. Uh, I mean, to be fair, a few teams are are similar to this, but they've. Um, yeah, they've they've got more points than they have goals, and and certainly there was a stage, and it's almost certainly still the case actually, given that we've only had eight games, but they've had more points and shots on goal. That was certainly the case a couple of rounds ago, and I can't imagine it's changed much at all now. Um, Meeks, just to finish off with Liverpool-Leicester on Sunday evening, um, how are Liverpool going to navigate this injury crisis with their, you know, almost the entirety of their back line depleted? Uh, I, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to come down to the creativity of Klopp, isn't it, basically? I think, I think actually it's quite interesting in that regard how, I mean, we, we, all know, we already know Klopp's a visionary and tactically all the rest of it. But this is a really very specific problem that he has to come up with a really creative solution to. And I think that's probably what's probably what we're going to see. Maybe some players use in unexpected roles. Uh, I have to say, I, I do think Liverpool, well, I, and I think even in a broader sense, I still, despite all of this, I still have them as champions. I think they'll have enough. Uh, but these are very interesting challenges to them. Um, that's going to demand a lot of Klopp in that regard. And well, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm quite fascinated to see what... what what configuration he puts out on Sunday, as much as even the kind of the eleven. Just um, you know, with regards to their opponents as well, Leicester City. How good are they? Um, in that, obviously they they were brilliant for the first half of last season, and then fell away at the end, then into project restart. That felt like about their level, kind of pushing for the top four, and and you know just falling short on that last game of the season against Manchester United. You know. It, should we expect much more of them? Is this is this basically their ceiling, or have they, you know, shown in this start that actually there is there is more to them than that? Um, so, well, I think Leicester are, are they're in kind of a fascinating situation themselves, in that yeah. they actually they drastically overperformed last season, but because of the way Project Restart went and because of their their drastic drop off, it doesn't look like they overperformed. Uh, that I mean, you could with the benefit of hindsight, now, you could say it was a bit of a, just a leveling out, or maybe they just couldn't sustain it. But they still, when when the dust settles, for Leicester to finish fifth in a season in a in a in a league with a traditional big six now and clubs like Wolves pushing up, that was seriously impressive. And I think, given how, given the flux of this season, uh, I think it would be impressive for them to do the same again. But I do think once more there is an opportunity for them to finish top four. I mean, you could even argue the reason they didn't finish top four last year ultimately was because, and this sums it up. Manchester United were, ba- were able to bring in a £70 million playmaker who almost kind of temporarily became a new Cantona for them, and Leicester obviously couldn't. Uh, and that's no reflection on Brendan Rodgers. That's almost that's a testament to him. But I do think there's opportunity there. And this is another one of those. I mean, it actually feels, a lot, a lot of this weekend feels a little bit of a kind of a, a put-your-cards-on-the-table weekend for Spurs, for City, 
for Liverpool, just given the situation, even though obviously they're champions and, and I would say still the favourites, but it's about, the, with them, it's about the, the current challenges. And for Leicester as well, and that they've been kind of, you know, they've been ticking along very nicely, you know, temporarily gone top, all the rest of it. Uh, and now after an international break like this and in a game like this, with a chance like this, um, we could we we could see maybe a bit of a leap from them. Yeah, spot on. And um, Jack, just uh, I'll leave you with the final word here. Do you think it's? I, I don't know. I suppose it varies from person to person. But do you think generally um, we should be giving Brendan Rodgers a bit more credit for not just the job he's done with with Leicester, but I suppose it's just general his managerial career overall. Yeah, I, I I do. I agree with that. I think. I think in terms of being a, a fashionable name, I think he, he falls foul of that a little bit and that for certain jobs over the last few years, he could have been arguably a much better fit. I think you look at Arteta at Arsenal, you look at Lampard at Chelsea. Could Brendan Rodgers have come in and done an equally good job with an as bright bright future as both of those? I think he could have done. You, the way that he develops young talent is... Is really impressive, and it's it's a joy to watch the likes of Fofana settling so nicely at, at Leicester. You look at James Madison, who had a really good good spell uh, at times last season, then tailed off. He's now brought him back in. I think you look at the way that he adapts as well to um, the way that his squad's made up. You, you look at Pereira, who arguably the best right back in the league after Trent Alexander Arnold lost a key piece in him. He was another big reason why they they weren't able to finish off the job and get that top four place. He sort of used the the, the squad available to him, dipped into the academy a little bit. Uh, you look at Luke Thomas as well, another young player, not afraid to throw them in at the deep end. And that trust really does, um, it, it comes out on, on the pitch, I think. So I, I think Rodgers is, is underrated to an extent and I'd love to see him get a job well, I, I mean, Leicester's a good job because they, they do have a, a pretty extensive budget. So there is, there's not many places you would go after that where he would enjoy that luxury, but with a, a greater chance of succeeding or getting to the Champions League on a more regular basis. So I think, yeah, he's he's certainly underrated in that sense. And it will be interesting to see whether he's learned the lessons of last year and can somehow manufacture a way of um, treading water when they inevitably go for a sticky patch. Okay, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks again to Miguel and Jack for joining me and to you at home for listening as well. If you're a new listener, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen from, and leave us a rating as well so that more people can find us. Make sure you're also following Indie Sport and Indie Football on social media to keep up to date with everything that's going on, and we'll see you all next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.